Hello and welcome to the Australian Bitcoin Podcast. My name is Daniel Wilczynski. I am the founder of Hardblock, an exchange that I believe is the best dollar cost averaging exchange in Australia. Today's guest is Tariq Samur. Tariq had a talk at Bitcoin Alive a few months back. He was also interviewed for the Australian Financial Review, where he talked about the impact of inflation on Australia's healthcare costs. We'll talk about that in the show, as well as how he orange peels his fellow doctors and what might Bitcoin click for him. Hi, welcome, Tariq, to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks, Daniel. Thanks for having me. So maybe give the uh, audience a bit of an introduction. Uh, who are you and what might you get interested in Bitcoin? Yeah, so my name is Tarek Samour. Um, I'm a, a surgeon at the Royal Adelaide Hospital uh, in Adelaide. I am also an associate professor at the University of Adelaide, so I do a bit of surgical type research. My background is I grew up in Dubai till I was about 16 years old, then uh, moved to New Zealand with my family. Uh, I did all my medical and surgical training in New Zealand, and then after that ended up in Australia uh, working as a surgeon. I've got two young kids and uh, a growing family in Adelaide. As far as why I was interested in Bitcoin, um, I've always been interested in technology and I'm sort of an inquisitive person by nature. And so I heard about Bitcoin in the early days, probably first started hearing about it in about 2014. Initially, when I heard about Bitcoin, I was very curious about the idea of being able to send money over the internet. Uh, back then, PayPal and things like that didn't exist. And so banking was very slow. And the idea that I could send value uh, anywhere in the world instantly uh, was very appealing. So that was the initial sort of view I had about Bitcoin in their very early days. I also listened to some of the OGs like Max Kaiser and some others that used to talk about it a lot as being a solution to the world's monetary problems. Although I didn't really understand that very well until many years later. So I bought a tiny amount of Bitcoin in the early days. Uh, I wish I bought a lot more, but I bought a tiny amount as sort of my way of investing in what I thought was a uh, superior technology uh, and a disruptive technology. And like many Bitcoiners, as time has gone on, I've become more and more of a Bitcoin maxi, and I've started to understand the promise more and more, uh, specifically with regards to how broken the current financial system is in terms of currency issuance and how Bitcoin is a possible solution to that problem. And so now I go around telling people about that, trying to educate people about that, particularly people in my circles here in terms of medicine and surgery. I didn't know you were from Dubai originally. Dubai is... I'm originally Palestinian, actually. Um, okay, so okay. Um, I'm ethnically Palestinian, but I grew up in Dubai till I was uh, about 16 years old. There's a lot of Bitcoin people in Dubai. Dubai is kind of becoming a bit of an economic hub, not only Bitcoin, but overall... Yeah, I mean, it's, they've always been very progressive with tech because, I mean, the UAE is an interesting place. Dubai is actually one of the, in terms of the Emirates, probably has the least amount of oil of many of the other Emirates. And so in order to attract investment, they've always had to be quite progressive with their policy around business and that sort of thing. And that's been the case since I grew up there. And I think crypto and Bitcoin is just the latest thing that they've gotten themselves into, but they always seem to um, try and get ahead of the times and trying to attract investment capital from around the area. So going back to Bitcoin, and you said you you were always somewhat technical. Yes. Um, before you got into Bitcoin, did you have an interest in things like economics? 
and or history or things like that? I mean, not really. I didn't have an interest in economics or history. Or I, libertarianism I in... or anything like that? No, not really. I, in fact, I, I would say because I grew up in Dubai, which is a sort of an ultra-capitalist society with a monarchy in charge, I was... I lean more towards the left side. So I've, I tend to be more of a, I, I, when I grew up, I was a bit more of a socialist in my outlook. And I sort of really liked countries like New Zealand and Australia because of the social services that they offer compared to, say, other countries like the US and Dubai. However, as I've gotten older and realized that the, there's no point really being a socialist country if the underlying money, money is corrupted, which is what we currently, uh, the situation we currently find ourselves in. I find myself becoming more and more centrist and having sharing some values with with my libertarian friends, but I wouldn't call myself an you know a, a libertarian as such. As far as my interest, I mean, I, I was interested in technology more than anything else. So, you know, what I, what I g- genuinely lean towards is technology. I've always been a bit of a computer nerd and that sort of thing growing up. I just love exploring new technologies. I think my exposure to economics and history and political ideology comes from the fact that I've lived in many varied types of places. So, you know, there's a very sharp contrast, for example, between the way the system works, the political system works in Dubai and in the UAE and the way the political system works in New Zealand. So even though I'm not naturally interested in those topics, just because I've had to live with those issues, it it sort of means that I understand maybe a little bit more than the average person, just because I've had to face the problems associated with both types of political systems. Now, sometimes I hear people, when new people get into Bitcoin and Bitcoiners tell them, okay, you, you got to do self-storage or you got to set up your own lightning node with Zeus and stuff like that. And for a lot of people coming in, this just seems so overwhelming, especially if you're not technical. You have some kind of background has have, in terms of being technical. You have some knowledge, you said. Do you think that's mm-hmm. necessary for somebody to come into Bitcoin? Do you think they have to be somewhat technically proficient? I think at the moment, that's definitely the case. I think it's important for early adopters because otherwise it's, it's, it is overwhelming. Like, you know, asking my 75-year-old dad to use Noster, for example, is impossible. So, or to even, you know, learn how to use a Lightning Wallet without significant input at the moment. But I think that's the case with all emerging technologies. You know, I think sometimes... Some of us who've been in Bitcoin for a while forget that it is still an emerging technology. And I think with as time passes, a lot of these things will change. And just like, for example, with the advent of the internet, in the early days, I remember you had to be quite technical to be able to use email. <laughs> so, whereas now you don't. So I think with time, as the apps improve and as the gateways improve, and as there is a general dispersion of some of the knowledge, the, the technical in, insight would, would need to be a lot lower. So the bar to get into Bitcoin would be a lot lower. It'll just live on an app on your phone and you would just use it without thinking about it. Kind of like we use email today. But I think at the moment, there's no question you have to have some level of technical knowledge, but also some level of interest to actually get into it. So what about somebody who's like 50 or 60 year old? And I actually met some people like that, even like doctors who asked me, uh, they were kind of curious about Bitcoin. And yeah. they were like, you know, they were doctors, they were pretty well off financially around 60 years of age. Yes. Uh, but they weren't super technical. What do you think? Like, what do you advise to them? Should they just ignore Bitcoin? Should, should, can they do anything? Or 
so I mean, my advice, I mean, I deal with this a lot. So I speak to these types of doctors a lot, actually. And, and you know, what I say to them is I try, try and explain it uh, in terms of the, uh, why the Australian dollar, the US dollar is a failing and broken system. Uh, and when I, I try and deal with it on that level, and when they ask what they can do, what I suggest, tend to suggest to people is to slowly dollar cost average into Bitcoin. And that mainly involves buying some Bitcoin at whatever rate they're comfortable buying. And I generally suggest a low regular amount so that uh, they invest in the future of the technology. And that's relatively easy to do. I don't tend to recommend they use it at a more deeper level than that before they understand how it works. So I don't ask them to use Lightning. I don't ask them to use Noster. I don't ask them to listen to MicroStrategy podcasts or anything like that. Uh, what I suggest they do is if they believe that there is a problem with the current financial system and they are willing to accept that Bitcoin may be a solution to that in the longer term, that maybe it's a good idea to get some now at a rate that they're happy to hold on to and not trade. And how, how do you recommend for them to store it? Yeah, so that's a good question. I get asked, that's the second question you get asked. I definitely do not recommend they keep it on exchanges. And I think for the vast majority majority of people, a, a, a soft wallet on their phone, which they can custody, is probably the, the best solution. If they're going to buy bigger amounts, then I recommend the hardware wallet. But for the vast majority of people, uh, I think that's at the moment, that's probably a step too far from what I've noticed. I, I agree with you. And that's what I recommend to people also. Easy to forget, but what we think is very basic for somebody new, it's overwhelming. No, I, I completely agree. So I think we have to start with the basic levels of education uh, rather than the technical aspects. I think the technical aspects are nice for people who are tech savvy, but for the vast majority of people, that's, you know, it's probably too much detail and too much information. I think really what they need to, what I tend to focus on is the fact that you know, like, for example, at the current moment right now, there are a lot of doctors that are completely over leveraged with their property investments. So, you know, they, they borrowed a lot of money when the interest rates were low, and now they're caught in a, in a trap where their mortgage rates are going through the roof, and they don't really know why this is happening to them. And so if you try and explain why this is happening, and you try and get down to the basement level, which is that the Reserve Bank and the Federal Reserve and all the central banks in the world attempt to control the money supply by raising and lowering interest rates. That's basically what they do to try and balance inflation with uh, unemployment. That's kind of, that's the stated mandate. Problem is that they have so much debt that there's only so much they can raise the interest rates. So sooner or later, they will have to start diluting the money supply again. And the way people notice that is, you know, the highest prices go up. And so, you know, I was talking to one of my colleagues the other day and, and I said to them, in general, if I had $100 and I loaned it out to you and you borrowed $100 from me, who should benefit from that relationship? You know, And most people will say, well, the person who has the $100 should benefit because they've saved $100. And I say, okay, so if I go to the bank and I put $100 in a bank account, is that better or worse for me than borrowing $100 and buying a house with it in general? And they will say, no, it's better to be in debt. And so I explain to them, well, how, why is it that in, you know, in 2023 in Australia, uh, your finance managers and your accountants encourage you to get into massive amounts of debt and that somehow that's advantageous to you in the long run? Surely there's a fundamental problem with the system where borrowers, people, people who are in debt are advantaged over savers. 
And when they sort of start thinking about it like that, well, then you say, because they can feel it, you know, they can feel that it is wrong to borrow a million dollars and buy a house for no obvious reason. But they do understand on some level that house prices go up faster than the value of your money. And so that's why they borrow and buy houses. That's why their finance managers tell them to do that. And so when you explain to them that the underlying money is the problem and that these days, the, what someone, a typical person in Australia does that has money is they try and save in houses rather than in dollars, uh, and that that system is not sustainable. Sooner or later, that system is going to have to collapse because the incentives are warped. Uh, they sort of get it, and they, they sort of become a bit afraid because they see that the system might be unwinding right now, and they, you know, like any natural human instinct is to try and protect yourself from potential disaster. They see banks failing, they see a potential housing market crash coming up, and they don't really know the extent of how bad that's going to be. And they worry for themselves and their family and the, the money that they've saved. And so I use that as leverage to say, look, if you want to have a hedge against collapse of the system, then perhaps you should get a small amount of money that is outside the system. And I think Bitcoin is a perfect representation of that. It's a technological solution to that problem. And most of them do get it. Now, the vast majority are still kind of afraid to buy any Bitcoin because they don't really understand it. But I can tell you that maybe 10% of the people I talk to end up buying some Bitcoin. And once they buy some Bitcoin, they're sort of forced to learn about it a bit more because they don't want to own something they don't understand. And that pervades throughout their experience. And inevitably, what happens to them is what happened to all of us, which is they end up buying more and more Bitcoin until Bitcoin becomes you know, their, uh, a, a larger part of their overall uh, wealth portfolio. And larger part of our headspace and the thinking. That's right. That's right. But yeah, I think like what you said, you need to start small and just give them some Bitcoin. I think that's the, that's the first stage because some people yeah. say we get a bit overwhelmed with everything you have to do. And sometimes people come, they come into Bitcoin and Bitcoin is telling them, oh, you need to learn this and learn this. But you don't need to learn it, certainly not all at the beginning. Just start and buy $10 worth of Bitcoin on your wallet. Yeah. And yeah, start from there. And over time, kind of improve your knowledge and buy more Bitcoin. And yeah. And I think that's the other issue is, you know, people think of Bitcoin as very expensive. So they, people who don't really understand, they go, I'm not spending 27,000 US dollars on a Bitcoin. And that's another barrier. And so I agree if you give them, $10 worth of Bitcoin, if you explain to them that, just buy $10 worth of Bitcoin a week and see what happens. And it becomes one of those things where it's, it's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy in a lot of ways. But I think you do need to get around that barrier of one, what it is, like why it's, why it's worthwhile to, to think about it. And two, that it's actually not as expensive as you think, because you can buy as as small an, an amount as you're comfortable buying. You were recently interviewed for an article in the Australian Financial Review, and we talked about yeah. medical inflation. And you talked some about, we already touched about some of, on some of the things that was in the article. Yeah. In terms of why doctors should personally invest in Bitcoin. Uh, but there were some other aspects that you talked about in the article about medical inflation and beds and things like that. Yes. I found that really yeah. interesting. Maybe yeah, so, so I mean, inflation affects us in, in every aspect of our lives, but 
the funny thing about inflation is, as we sort of know as Bitcoiners, that hard assets inflate more in price than, so the price goes up faster than soft assets. In my opinion, there is no harder asset than something like a hospital bed or, a, a, or an operating theater. And the reason I say that is, if you think about something like houses as hard assets, most people understand that houses are hard assets because you can't, make, uh, you can't build houses fast enough for the demand. And so uh, they tend to go up in price very quickly. That same rule applies in healthcare, except it's magnified because a hospital bed is much harder to make than an apartment bed or a hotel bed or a house because of the amount of investment required to create a hospital bed in terms of technology, but also in terms of staff. So a hospital bed is generally quite a high-tech environment. You know, you need, for example, you need oxygen to be plumbed into the walls, which you don't need in a normal house. Uh, you need uh, monitoring equipment and you need a nurse to pay a nurse a salary to look after the patient in the bed. So a hospital bed is much more expensive than a, than a house bed or a room, and it is uh, much harder to make more of. And so as a result, the prices of healthcare, the cost it takes to create a hospital bed goes up much faster than the cost of even housing. And the way doctors feel this is if you speak to any doctor and you say to them, you know, what's the waiting list like for surgery today versus 50 years ago? Or what's the pressure on the beds like today versus 50 years ago? And they will all quite easily tell you that the system is much more congested and much more difficult to deliver healthcare uh, to. But they don't really understand why that is. They think it's just the aging population. But actually, that's not the case. I mean, that's one factor. But the major factor is that the amount of investment that the government and private healthcare providers invest into healthcare goes up roughly with CPI. And that's not enough to keep up with the increase in price of healthcare, which is, you know, at least three to four times that, if not more. And that's been the case pretty much since 1971. But it has been the case, let's say, for a number of decades. So we're, we're in a situation now where the funding for healthcare, relatively speaking to, say, 50 years ago, is, is very, very low, uh, even though the absolute number goes up a little bit every year. In relative terms, it's extremely low. And so, you know, the healthcare system is slowly going bankrupt, just like everything else. And as a result, we can't deliver the same level of service that we could in the past. And so that was the purpose of my talk at uh, Bitcoin Alive. And the AFR, Australian Financial Review, interview was somewhat of a slight surprise. I didn't really realize they were going to do a full-page article about it or anything like that. Obviously, it's an investing journal, and they're more preoccupied with the investment side of it, whereas I was sort of more talking about the social consequences of healthcare inflation. And what you're saying is that things like hospital beds a kind of real estate and because yes. of that inflation but as overvalue of land in australia and as the value of real estate goes up real estate mm -hmm. in the form of hospital beds is also mm -hmm. going up yeah but even more so even more so than than normal real estate yeah even more so because it is much harder to make more hospital beds than it is to make more houses so the in terms of looking at something that's a hard asset, hard asset means it's hard to make more of it, basically. You know, something like gold or houses. And those dynamics, those supply dynamics are even heightened when it comes to something like a hospital bed because it's so much more difficult to make more hospital beds than it is to make more houses. And in that article, you, you gave some numbers, uh, which apparently in 1967, 
the Royal Adelaide Hospital, where you work at, serviced yes. an area of 600,000 people and had 900 beds for 600,000 people at a ratio of one bed to 800 people. And now the ratio is one bed to 2,000 people. That's exactly right. And basically, if you look at our history in Australia and everywhere else, the number of hospital beds per population has been going down at a very fast rate. So the total number of beds are going up, but it's not keeping up with the population. So in, in fact, the opposite is true. So the number of beds per population uh, has gone down by something like a factor of 10, you know, over the last couple of, uh, over the last, uh, you know, few decades. And when, when you got into Bitcoin, a lot of people go down the path of going to altcoins and shitcoins. Yeah. And then they come into Bitcoin. Was that also the path that you followed? Yeah. So when I first got into Bitcoin, I didn't really know anything about altcoins because most of them didn't exist. So I didn't really um, get into them. But I did do a couple of years worth of, of shitcoining uh, until, you know, relatively recently. And I... I sort of thought it was the it's, the it's the greed side that takes over. And you think, why don't I just put a small percentage into these altcoins and watch them 10,000x? You know, it's that kind of mentality. It's more of a gambling mentality than anything else. And you, you, but you lie to yourself and you believe the hype that somehow this is going to be a promising token for some reason. Uh, but then, you know, you learn your lesson and you realize that that is simply not the case. Not, none of the other tokens are properly decentralized. Most of them have foundations and owners behind them that basically profit off the misery of others, whether they care to admit it or not. And so you eventually realize that there's really only one fully decentralized uh, cryptocurrency, and that's Bitcoin. Everything else is more of the same fiat tokenomics. Earlier on, you said that when you first started using Bitcoin, you were just interested in it for using to send money overseas as a kind of a payments method. Yeah. And later you kind of became more aware of its deeper kind of monetary aspects. Yeah. So I'm just wondering what was that? Is it what made it click for you? Did you, when you, did you, I'm guessing initially when you're thinking of it, using it just for, to send money overseas, you probably went investing in it because you you didn't see it as an investment asset. Yeah, you? no, no. So I did see it as an investment asset because you got to remember like back then, you know, I, I was personally sending money between countries and it was very difficult to do. And the banks charged an extortionate rate and there was nothing like PayPal or anything to make it instant. So initially I thought this is going to revolutionize money transfers, you know, because it's, this is even before Lightning, right? This is just the base layer Bitcoin network because it was so much faster than, than the traditional system was at the time and, and cheaper. Now, as time went on and things like PayPal and Wise and other services became, became on the scene, that aspect of Bitcoin became much less useful. It is still useful in terms of you know, the semi-autonomous nature and the fact that Lightning is actually much cheaper now than, than many of these existing services. But you know, PayPal is easier to use than base layer. But, and when things like that became obvious, I sort of didn't really understand then what the purpose of Bitcoin was. Initially, I thought of it as a revolutionary money transfer technology. Then for a couple of years, I'm like, well, how does this improve on PayPal? I don't really know. So I, I sort of wasn't sure about it. But where it really clicked for me was, it, it clicked for me gradually, but there was one moment I remember during 
during COVID actually, where I was like, oh, I get it now. And it was the moment where the entire world was shut down. So businesses were shut down, at least in the West. Immigration was shut down. Tourism was shut down. There was way less flow of people into and out of most countries, including Australia. But yet the house prices exploded 20% in one year. So in Melbourne, the house prices went up 20% during COVID. And it became very clear to me that the price of something like houses is not really about supply and demand. It's about dilution of the money supply. Because obviously during COVID, the government printed a, a, a huge amount of money. And a lot of that money found its way into housing because that's where people put money. And so I suddenly realized that, oh, okay, even if the world is depressed and depressed, and the price of hard assets actually goes up, not down. And that has nothing to do with the typical supply and demand things that we understand as being the determinants of price. It became clear to me that the determinant of price is, is it a hard asset? How much money is the government printing? So I became very disillusioned with this idea that somehow the government is stimulating housing during the worst economic depression of my time. I thought this was a very weird way to manage an economy. And I started sort of digging into it a bit deeper and deeper, and it became clear to me that there is no way out for these people, and what, by these people, I mean the reserve banks, than to continuously inflate the money supply. There is no other option uh, for them, and that will continue forever. And that's because the amount of debt they have on their books at the moment, and you know the US is struggling with this at the moment, it's so high that they're unlikely to ever pay it back. And the only way they can pay it back is to continuously print money. And when they print this money, it's going to end up in things like housing, which makes housing very expensive for millennials and young people and people on lower incomes, which actually ruins a society. So at that point, it was very obvious to me that the only way to address this is to redo the system from the base layer up. And by base layer, I mean the currency layer. And it only then was it obvious to me what Satoshi meant with the original inscription in the Genesis block. It was only at that time that that became really obvious to me. And I, I started to think about it as a moral imperative to tell people about this and to explain the situation so that the people who are currently being taken advantage of by the broken system have a chance to get on the train earlier than those who are being advantaged by the broken system. And so that's that's my current thinking around it. Speaking of inscriptions, what do you think of ordinals? And just to give listeners a context, um, yes, it's right now it's 16th of May, and in the past week, last week, Bitcoin fees went up a lot to around fifty, sixty dollars per transaction, as high as that. Yes. We've dropped since then, and a lot of that was basically because of ordinals and BRC20 tokens. But yeah, what's yeah. your take on that? Are you... Yeah, that's a good Bitcoin question. A split, of yeah. split on it. Yeah, I'm on the side of uh, everything's good for Bitcoin. And it's designed to be resilient to free market activity like this. And so I personally don't care about ordinals. I would never make one. Uh, I don't understand the point of the JPEGs being so valuable. I do think there may be a role for inscribing uh, important documents like the constitution or something like that in, in, in that using that uh, method. 
because if you want to protect some sort of document forever and make it resistant to change, then that might be one way to do it. I do think it's quite an expensive way to do it. So it better be a very, very important document for you to do that. I don't see the point of putting weird wizard JPEGs on there. I think that's a waste of resource, but that's just my opinion. And you know, the point is Bitcoin's for everybody. It's designed for everybody. It is designed to be resilient to whatever use case people want to use it for. And at the end of the day, I don't think it harmed the network in any significant way. And, you know, from my point of view, they can inscript as many JPEGs as they want, as long as they're willing to pay the fee. I think what sometimes people forget is these people are paying a lot to, <laughs> to have these things done in the way that they want to do them. And they're paying that fee to the miners. So, you know, good luck to them. And, you know, the miners are pretty happy, it seems like. So if they're willing to pay a lot of money to put a, what is in my opinion, a fairly useless uh, use case, that's fine. You know, I'm, I'm not, you know, none of us are the arbiters of why, how the network should be used. Uh, the network is an open network for a reason. And uh, the game theory of the network will determine where it goes. And, you know, so far it's been actually highly successful at that. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Yeah, I pretty much agree with you. Like we say, there's no CEO of Bitcoin. So if somebody wants to use Bitcoin in Hawaii, we don't want to use it. Then, you know, there's no CEO to say they can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, it, it's pretty clear some of them were doing it uh, with the intention of spamming and joking around. That's uh, been stated publicly on Twitter and things. And that's fine. You know, as long as they're willing to pay for it, <laughs> nobody's losing, you know, other than that, their own money. They can't really like they can spam it, but it's not free. They cannot pay for it. So exactly. eventually, the, the only way people can put thing on Bitcoin if they're willing to pay for it. So it must right. be somehow value valuable for them to put it on Bitcoin. And I, actually, yes. I was thinking a bit about Ordinals. I'll tell you my thoughts on it. I, I think there's what you said, but it's definitely a, a big part of it. Um, if you want to preserve something. Or kind of have like a proof, a timestamp proof of when it was created. So mm -hmm. putting something on the blockchain is useful for that, kind of as evidence that it was created at this particular time. But I think it's also valuable in if you've got something that you really want the people and everybody in the world to see or to share, you can put it on Bitcoin, on the Bitcoin blockchain. On this kind of uncensorable medium that is going to last throughout the ages. And the fact that you pay so much for it, the fact that it's so efficient means that you're actually paying for it. So you think it's valuable. It's kind of like an anti-spam feature. You're giving yes. it to the world, some kind of information which is preserved. And you think it's actually valuable for the world to pay attention to because you're willing to pay money to put it on the blockchain. Does that kind of yeah. make sense? It does make sense. And a lot of these um, spammers on Twitter, they, their goal, their stated goal is to increase adoption of things like Lightning. So they're trying to accelerate because eventually Bitcoin fees are going to be high. They have to, they have to be high at some point. And so you know, down the line, when the issuance of Bitcoin drops. And so you know, the network is relying on this idea that down the line, the fees will be high enough to sustain the miners. So some of these spammers are basically saying that the reason they've actively spammed the network is to demonstrate to the Bitcoin community that 
when the fees are high, right, there needs to be other layer two solutions to enable quick and rapid transactions for small payments and solutions like Lightning. And so they, you know, and there's no question, for example, that Binance as a big exchange and Coinbase have both now committed to implementing Lightning for withdrawals on their centralized exchanges. And that part of the reason they've done that is because the fees went up so high that people were complaining that it was very expensive to withdraw their Bitcoin. And it was costing the centralized exchanges a lot of money to try and uh, give let people have their Bitcoin. So in some ways, even though the wizards and the, and the dick pics and whatever were a waste of space, definitely in terms of the uh, JPEG itself, some benefit to what they did. That's it for today's episode. I really hope you got something out of that. Give us a review on your podcast player. That would really help us out. And happy stacking and see you next time.